Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, a one-man view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, March the 9th, 2021. This is episode 2838, 2838 of the Survival Podcast. It is the Just Jack Show. We're going to take a single subject and break it down, though this is a multi-level subject on a big way. Um, I'm calling today's show the coming bifurcation of society, and I've alluded to this. My Miyagi Mornings video came at this specifically from the standpoint of technology and cryptocurrency this morning. And I will be revisiting some of those topics, but most of what I said there I will not rehash here. If you want to get deeper into the role crypto plays in this than uh, you hear today on the air, uh, you can go watch the Miyagi Mornings video, or you can catch the Miyagi Mornings weekly recap that comes out on Saturday. Uh, so I put these videos out all the time now generally five days a week, and um, I put them all back together, and in your podcast feed, you should see a Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap show up sometime Saturday morning, so if you don't watch the videos, um, you can listen to that podcast. You can also share those videos for people that aren't ready for a full podcast yet. That's a big reason I started doing them, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately as I've been getting very articulate, well-thought-out arguments from people against things like cryptocurrency. Uh, not, and you'll hear me use the term dumb-dumb today, so not dumb-dumb arguments, but um, arguments that are based on beliefs that either are not true or because they're true, you actually have more of a reason to be involved. And I've been thinking more and more about this, and I've been thinking about it in all aspects of life, both high-tech and low-tech. And when I say low-tech, I don't really mean the absence of technology. I mean... We got maybe a better way to look at it really would be, and maybe I'll change in the show notes, I don't know yet, like online or computer-based or technology-based in the interconnected world versus offline, non-interconnected things that still might use technology. So if we talk about homesteading, there can be a lot of technology used on a homestead. In fact, I think that the homesteads of the future will utilize technology to a high degree Because in the famous words of one of my good friends named David, what would you do if you didn't have to do it? Now, that's how he kind of teaches automation to people. Think about that. Like, if you didn't have to do it, and you didn't have to pay anybody to do it, or what you did pay somebody to do it was, like, stupid cheap, then what would you do? And you would do all of it, whatever it is for you, right? Because the biggest things that hold us back from doing things are what? Money. Time and resources. Well, if we can scrape together enough resources and enough money to put an automated solution in place, time becomes irrelevant. Time becomes irrelevant. If I can make something on my farm, on my homestead, happen all by itself, then I have not only that time, I don't have to expend that time to get that thing done. I have that time to do something else, maybe to set up more automation. And automation is, is gold. Uh, I use automation extensively in my business. I don't manually go submit the podcast to all the feed services uh, every time I publish one. I publish it, and the things I did in the beginning to set up automated feed delivery, which are pretty easy, uh, take care of it from there. 
when I send an email, I don't worry about what happens next. It, it happens all by itself. All right. So we're going to talk about both sides of this today. Again, I'm going to just, I'm going to just stick with, because I think it'll make sense to people, the high tech side and the low tech side. And we're going to talk about how that's going to lead to a split in society, not between high tech and low tech, by the way. And when I talk about bifurcation in society today because of political tribalism, the left and the right, people think that's what I mean, the right and the left splitting. The right and the left will continue to hate each other and fight with each other, but they are not going to split in the bifurcation based on left and right. The bifurcation I'm talking about today is going to be going forward, especially over the next 10 years, the people who are able to continue to live life on their own terms versus the people completely controlled by the system. Where the, the, the majority, and this is not a split, a classic split 50-50. Right? You ever have someone say you're going to split a sandwich with you and they break the sandwich in half and there's a big half and a little half? Right? You know that they're not halves, right? But that's how we say it, the big half and the little half. We're going to be the little half. Those of us who are going to maintain some semblance of control and freedom in our lives. Now the thing is, when you're living in a world with 9 billion people, which is what we're headed for, or even a country with 350 million people, the little half is still a shitload of people. And there's power in numbers. And there, I think that 100 people living life on their own terms can do a hell of a lot more than 10,000 people living life the way they're told to, like ants. So we talk about ants a lot on the show, at least we did in the beginning, about the ant and the grasshopper. And the, the, the lesson of the ant is preparedness. But you don't want the lifestyle of an ant. You don't want the lifestyle of an ant. And that's what they want us to be, ants. Controlled. As, as, as the way that ants are by pheromones, they want to control us with money and promises. And I'm even going to lead the show off today. I'm going to play for you a little segment. I, I think I played it before a long time ago. But it's called The Great Reset Explained in Five Minutes. And while the speaker in the video is not them, you know, with quotes, they, right, um, he is using their own words. Everything that the speaker says and claims that, that the people behind this in the World Economic Forum, the Davos crowd, uh, have said, you can go track it down. You can go to the World Economic Forum and you can verify all of it. So I'm going to lead off with that to kind of set the stage for what we're really talking about today. Then we're going to break it down into the high-tech side, which is things like cryptocurrency, the evolving marketplaces, um, virtual nations, all that stuff. And then we're going to switch to our old guidance from 2008, that TSPC. It's something we led the charge with early on in the first couple months of the show, back when I was in my car, moving from home to homestead, and how that plays into this and how those two work together. And I really think by the end of the show, and we go through our final thoughts, you're going to realize that this is something that's going to happen. We don't get a single bit of choice in whether or not this happens. I've been saying that for at least a year. When all this COVID shit started and it became apparent how they were going to use it, they were going to take the things they were already trying to do and use this as an accelerant, gas on the fire, so to speak, that you're not going to stop this. This is going to happen. What you get to choose for a limited period of time, I believe, is which side of this bifurcation you end up on. All right. With that, before we get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, is ButcherBox. Um, last night, I ate delicious pastured pork tenderloin wrapped in delicious pastured pork bacon. It was delicious. It really was. Um, and it was easy, easy, easy to do. Let me tell you how I made this. 
So first of all, I got my pork tenderloin. And, you know, a tenderloin has kind of a thick side and a thin side. So about the last third of the thin tail of the pork tenderloin, I cut it off with a knife and I flipped it over to kind of even out the thickness of the tenderloin. And then I took a whole package of butcher box bacon. Oh, before I did that, I sprinkled uh, Chef Paul's Redfish Magic Seasoning all over the tenderloin, kind of rolled it in it, nice and seasoned. Then I took the bacon and I wrapped it. I wrapped a piece of bacon around, and where that ended, I like a, like a bandage. You know, you put the next bacon overlapping that and overlapping a little bit. So by the time you had the whole thing wrapped up, there's only one tail of the bacon stuck a toothpick in there. Got my meter thermometer, shoved it in there, set the temperature for 145 degrees internal temperature, turned the oven on, convection bake, and set it for 450 degrees. Sprinkled that same Redfish Magic seasoning all over the outside of the bacon. Took a sheet pan, some aluminum foil so it wouldn't make a mess that's hard to clean up, and a cooling rack to keep the keep it up so the air could circulate around it. Set that in there. And my wife and I both said, it smells like barbecue. There's no barbecue in there. What's going on? And, man, it was a fantastic dinner. It was a fantastic, fantastic dinner. Juicy, succulent, and it all came from butcher box. It's just one of the things that I get. I get, you know, my beef, my poultry, my pork, all from ButcherBox now. You should check them out, too. And remember, you can get a discount of $10 off every box for life if you're an MSB member. If you have a monthly box, that's $120 a year. My membership's only $50. So that one supporting membership pays for your entire cost of the MSB per year. And there's a bunch of other ones, too. So a little... Hit there for member support brigade as well. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Such an easy publication for me to endorse because I first started reading it when I got out of the Army in 1993 and I still read it today. I really don't know that I need to say anything more than that. If, if you took something like Mother Earth News and took all the political bullshit out of it and threw a little bit of libertarianism to it, but mostly stuck to the nuts and bolts of how to actually do stuff, like Mother Earth News used to be like in the 80s, That's what you would have with Backwoods Home Magazine. It's just a fantastic publication. They've gone to a quarterly publication, so four, four editions a year. And I know a lot of people are like, man, it's only four a year. But what they've done is they're, they're like a book. It's like four books a year. So it, it just costs less as a publisher today, if you're going to have an offline publication, to do less editions and put more in each edition. And, and that's what they've done. And it is a stockpile of information in every edition. Check them out today at Backwoods Home. Dot com. With that, let's dig into this. And again, I just want to kind of start out with a lot of people would think when they heard this title, it's political tribalism, and instantly think Democrat versus Republican. And I can't be more clear, that's not what I'm talking about. No, I'm talking about people who are technologically educated and live in a virtual free market in the future. That doesn't mean everything will be free market, but you will have... If you are an educated person that's established in these alternative methods of doing business, you'll have some level of a virtual free market, places where you and other people who want to do business with each other can, and do so without a middleman and relatively privately, up to the point of maybe almost being 100% private. And then there's going to be those who are 100% in and controlled by and tracked by, quote-unquote, the system. And, and, and I, I generally don't like the term the system, Because I think the system is a very limited term. Well, we have our systems. But in this case, I'm talking about an economic system, a single one of the systems. And it is going to be the number one way that people are controlled. And the plans of the global oligarchs are clear. 
They're not hidden. They're not conspiracy theories. They are now openly stating their goals, and they have been ever since COVID started. They wish to make ownership of almost all major things, from real estate to vehicles to your own body, a thing of the past. Again, this is stated goals. The goal is a world in which, in their own words, it's 2030, you own nothing, you have almost no privacy, and yet you have never been so happy. And people will believe this, and it makes me want to weep for humanity that people will believe, not that they intend to do this, but that they can do this in a way that will make you happy. If you think about it, there's literally not a single thing that government has touched that hasn't been made worse. We declared war on poverty, we have more poverty than ever. We really do. We have more people living in poverty than when they declared war on poverty. But yet we have a war on poverty. The government fixed health insurance for you under the Obama administration in 08, 09, 10, right? I guess you say 09 and, and, and 2010, right? They fixed it with the Affordable Care Act. They should have called it the Unaffordable Care Act. Insurance prior to them fixing it wasn't perfect, but I have not yet met a person who wouldn't rather have things back the way that they were. A person that actually pays for their own health insurance anyway. Or has insurance provided by their employer. The only people that seem to think Obamacare is a great idea are the people that get insurance for free. We could have given all those people insurance for free for a hell of a lot less money than this has cost us. The government touched it. They destroyed it. The government destroys everything. In 1990, you could go to Walmart and buy a gas can that worked. Today you can't even buy a gas can that works because the government fixed it. If you trust the people and the government and industry working together, which is technological fascism today, is what does this. Because I guarantee you somebody's making a lot of money off these shitty gas cans. And that person is and that group is who lobbied to change the law. It wasn't really to fix anything that was wrong. And that's what's going on here. People that are behind this are the oligarchs and the technocrats that want to control everything. And something I said in my video today, it's very important to understand before we go deep into this. These people are sociopaths and psychopaths, and they have to be. And I really want you to think about it this way as we set the stage going into it. I offer you a million dollars, no strings attached, I'll just give you a million dollars. What do you say? Well, thank you, Jack. This is life-altering. Okay. I'll give you five. You might look around and make sure you're not being... But once you realize, like, I'm really getting five million dollars, you're probably going to be incredibly grateful to me. And you'll take that five million dollars and you'll go build a wonderful life with it. Okay, ten million. I'm going to give you ten million. This is a point where you're probably going to give half of it away. Okay, a hundred... And you tell me that. So I say, okay, I'm going to give you a hundred million dollars. Isn't there a point? I know it's easy to think, oh man, I'm gonna like I always say I'm gonna you know buy the island of Jakistan or something like that. Um, for most normal people, when you get out a little bit out of the fancy land and you 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 just really consider this from a standpoint of if it was real, if it was real, most people would hit a point where they would say, you know, I've I've done enough. I've got enough. I, I don't want any more. And even the point where you'd go, 
I don't even want the responsibility of having to oversee giving this money away anymore. Surely somebody else is worthy. I have enough. Pick somebody else as your next benefactor, right? Pick somebody else to, to give this to. Like, I don't want any more. Well, you have these people that are worth four, five, twenty, fifty, sixty billion dollars still seeking money and power. I think the average person is well short of a billionaire is where they're like, I don't, I, I, I'm good. I'm good. It's too much. I don't want anymore. And this is a natural human reaction. In tribal societies of the past, the people that today are oligarchs, technocrats, and politicians were identified as psychopaths. And they were offered a choice. Quit trying to control so much, or we're going to take you out in the woods and kill you. And you think I'm kidding. I'm not. This is deep research that was done by my, my, my late friend Toby Hemingway in his, his last work with the book that he put out. And the background into anarchism and tribalism, real tribalism, not political tribalism. Very well researched and very well proven to be true. That we recognized in, in, in egalitarian human societies, not the need that everybody have the exact same, but there were people that when they had as much as anybody else had and had everything they needed and they sought more things and more control, they were dangerous people and they were offered a chance. Rain your shit in, you get banished or you get your head cut off. Because we realized how dangerous they were. Well, in modern society where we have had these people take over, and it is the dawn of agriculture that created this possibility, where psychopaths that we normally think of as like drooling, you know, rabid-looking individuals like Hannibal Lecter in a cage talking to Clarice about eating your face off, well, they realize, you see, I think this is a, a, a reality about psychopaths and sociopaths. The vast majority of them are incredibly intelligent. They have very high IQs compared to the average. Now, understand, the average IQ in America is 98. And, and, and the, the, the cutoff for the word we're not supposed to use anymore for mentally retarded is 75. So a person with like 120, 130 IQ is, is, is relatively intelligent versus the average. And many psychopaths are in the you know, 135, 145 class. They're in the genius top 2% of society class. They're smart. Smart is not always good if it's if it's if it's attached to this psychopathy. So they they adapt very very quickly and they they realize that they can seek power and attain it, or they can seek money and attain it. And they they bifurcate into people that are most concerned with money, and people that are most concerned with power. And people say money is power. Yes, yes, but there's people that want to feel that they have mostly the power. And there's people that want to feel that they have mostly the control of the power. And the con see, it's not money is power. Money is the ability to control power. Because the political class is the power class. And the billionaire class, the technocracy, the oligarchy, is the controlling class. They control the power. Think of it like this. The, the politicians are the motor, and the oligarch is the foot on the accelerator. And this is the world that we live in. And so you need to understand that all of these people in these positions of power, anybody who would be in government for 30 years and have millions of dollars because of legalizing insider trading, they're 60 years old, 70 years old, 
and they're running for re-election. You have to be a psychopath. You have to be. Why do you need to continue to control society at an age when most people would be happy to take a walk on the beach and be left alone? Because you have a need for power. And the same thing can be said of people that are worth a billion dollars or more, that want more, that want more, that want more. It's not that they want to do good. They want more. They want more. They want more. They're psychopaths. And think about that, and I'm about to play something for you. The Great Reset explained in five minutes. And this really is, again, even though the speaker is not an advocate, is actually an antagonist against the Great Reset, it really is their own words. It really is what they want. There's not a claim made here that cannot be verified. Here we go. It's not only a great reset, it's a great deception. Replacing mum and dad, small businesses and private enterprises with big tech and big business. Democracy and free enterprise go out the window, totalitarian government control slides in through the back door. Those behind this scheme are adamant that there can be and never will be a return to normal. That life will never again be what it was prior to COVID. That is why they constantly talk about the new normal. The World Economic Forum meets every January in Davos. You will have heard of the expression Davos man. It refers to all the zillionaires and pop stars and popes and princes and politicians who meet every year to map out our futures. This year's Davos is very, very different to all the previous ones. The World Economic Forum, along with the United Nations, along with the International Monetary Fund, and along with any number of prominent globalist organizations and powerful individuals, including Prince Charles, together have jointly promised that the 2021 World Economic Forum will be used to introduce via a vast network of connected big tech corporations, online activist movements and compliant local and national governments, something they call the Great Reset. This isn't some uh, sky after dark fantasy conspiracy theory. It is a global commitment they have made to use the panic and fear generated by the coronavirus as a means to reshape all our economies and laws and move to a new form of capitalism that focuses on net zero emissions. You might think this is a great thing, you might think this is a terrible thing. If implemented successfully, the Great Reset will undeniably and deliberately have extreme and possibly dire repercussions for every single one of your constituents. Already, the Great Reset is being widely advertised on posters and in ads across the UK and Europe, and no doubt will be here before too long. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy is just one of their marketing slogans. The plan involves replacing shareholders of big companies with stakeholders who happen to be left-wing bureaucrats and climate change zealots. Replacing mum and dad, small businesses and private enterprises with big tech and big business. Mrs. Kafup's share portfolio is out. Greta Thunberg's zero emissions are in. Democracy and free enterprise go out the window. Totalitarian government control slides in through the back door. But remember, it's not only a great reset, it's a great deception. Because in order to get everyday people to surrender many of the rights and freedoms we currently take for granted, the repeatedly stated aim of these organizations is to deliberately use COVID as an excuse, to use all the political and authoritarian tools, as Prince Charles puts it, 
that are currently being used around the world to eradicate the virus, such as lockdowns, exclusion zones, forced closure of businesses, heavy fines, making protesting illegal, and so on, but now to eradicate carbon emissions. Those behind this scheme are adamant that there can be and never will be a return to normal, that life will never again be what it was prior to COVID. That is why they constantly talk about the new normal. This is, this is not me saying this, this is them saying it, the people with the power and the means and the obsessional desire to do it. And they keep telling us again and again precisely what they have in store. Now is the historical moment, the time, not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system. We have a unique but rapidly shrinking window of opportunity to learn lessons and reset ourselves on a more sustainable path. It is an opportunity we have never had before and may never have again. So we must use all the levers we have at our disposal, knowing that each and every one of us has a vital role to play. The Great Reset is a welcome recognition that this human tragedy must be a wake-up call. It is imperative that we reimagine, rebuild, redesign, reinvigorate and rebalance our world. Rebalancing investment, harnessing science and technology, and advancing the transition to net zero emissions, all elements of the Great Reset, are fundamental to building the future we need. And if it's still not clear, the book written by World Economic Forum boss Klaus Schwab himself setting out precisely how the most powerful forces in the world are lining up to use the COVID-19 crisis as a pretext for introducing a new climate change focused one world economy that will strip away property rights and basic democratic rights. They are not hiding this stuff, they are shouting it from the rooftops. The World Economic Forum boasts on its website that the only acceptable response to the COVID crisis is to pursue a great reset of our economies, our politics and our societies. Okay, so what I want you to understand is for this world that they want to exist, the objection I talked about in my video today, while not a valid objection, is a valid claim. They do seek and they do require the ability to track and tax 100% of all transactions. And I can tell you that you might even get into a world where they stop taxing income. I know that sounds absolutely insane, it, it, and it will be very hard for that to occur, but there is a possibility that if they have the level of control that they're looking for in the future, it will be easier to basically VAT tax everything than income tax. Now, you might say, why would they give up one for the other? Well, because they pay income tax, too, would be one reason. And I don't think it would be a fast transition. But it may be a way to get the masses to accept this concept, or they may eliminate income tax below a certain threshold of income that's rather, you know, rather high in the world of the average workaday person's mind, right? Not really that high, but in their mind anyway. But they do want to be able to tax all transactions, but more importantly than taxing them, they want to be able to track them to this level. Bill wants health insurance. 
United Health Insurance Inc. looks at Bill's transactional records and see he spends an awful lot of money on cigarettes and booze, so they're going to jack up his insurance. Now, I know what you'll say, but don't they want government control of health care? Sure they do, and there's still going to be supplemental insurance. You're going to, you're going to, have, you're going to pay over-the-top cost for government insurance, okay, through taxation, and you're going to get shitty service, and you're still not going to have everything covered, and you're still going to have to buy private insurance to, to, to basically make up the difference. And they'll make you. You don't think so? Ask somebody on Medicare about the donut hole. Ask them about Medicare Part B supplemental. Go ahead. If they're going to make it like Medicare, which is what they keep promising to do, that's what they're going to do. They want to be able to control you from a stateside situation, but they also are going to turn this into a situation where the banking system controls you and all the major services and businesses you do business with control you. We're living in a society where they just effing banned Pepe Le Pew for being a contributing factor to rape culture. You don't think... When all transactions are traceable, that they'll be able to start canceling people, punishing people because of their choices in the marketplace, which is our final and most important vote. You don't think they're going to do that? This is all a reason to be in cryptocurrency, not a reason to avoid it, which is the intelligent person's objection to crypto. Well, they're going to trace everything. They're going to trace. Then you better get in crypto. Well, they'll be able to trace crypto, too. Maybe. Sort of. Not all of it. We, when we talk about Bitcoin, we're talking about technology. There's been some adjustments and additions to the Bitcoin network, right? But it's really 11-year-old technology. It's 11-year-old technology. And 11-year-old technology in 1950 was pretty old. 11-year-old technology in 2021 is like 1900 technology in 1990. It's that vastly different. What we can do in the, not even the hell with crypto for a second, in the blockchain space today makes Bitcoin a legacy dinosaur. But it's a legacy dinosaur like gold. That's why I still have a lot of holdings in it, because it will be the reserve currency for the foreseeable future, and it will be the place that the oligarchs go with their money because it does line up with their desire to be able to trace and connect the dots of transactions. Because if we take a Bitcoin and we funge it into fiat in an open marketplace where people can see it, we can literally trace back the entire history of that Bitcoin through the blockchain, everywhere it went and everywhere it was. And you know what? I don't care. I don't, I'm not worried about that. Well, they're going to tax it. Well, they already are taxing. You're supposed to pay tax on it. But people get away with that. I understand. And what I said today about this is, you know, I'm not going to stop trading stocks and mutual funds because they tax those, and neither is anybody, any, anybody else. But there are technologies within blockchain where we can move money from something like a Bitcoin into something like a Monero or a pirate chain, and poof, It's gone. And they're baby technologies. They're infant technologies. Let me bring our quote of the day in at this point. This time, instead of forgetting it, I actually, this is where I wanted to bring it in. Um, this is by Carl Sandburg, a poet. And I know Carl Sandburg well, only because I had to do a report on him in 11th grade. Um, 
one time he said, let the gentle bush dig its roots, its root deep, and spread upward to split one boulder. And if you think about anything that we've, we've taught you with permaculture over the years, is that trees, bushes, shrubs can actually grow in places with very poor and very little soil, and eventually their roots make contact with rock. And one way or another, through exudates and humic acid, they begin to eat into the rock. And tiny fissures form in the rocks due to nature's uh, weather patterns and due to the acid and due to that little root getting in there, and that little root gets in there. And that root begins to expand. And this great mighty boulder eventually will split, and soil will be a, begin to be built inside two halves of a boulder from the gentle bush. That is the bifurcation that I'm talking about today, and that is the power of something like cryptocurrency and blockchain. You look at it and you think, well, it's just this thing. And, and I don't think anybody really realizes the power that it has yet. And as it begins to grow, it's in its infancy now. It's a tiny little bush. It looks huge because it's a trillion-dollar asset now. I think this morning it, it crossed back into being a trillion-dollar asset. That's not the entire crypto market. That's just Bitcoin, a trillion-dollar asset. So it looks huge. In the global economic marketplace, a single trillion-dollar asset is a baby shrub. It's in good shape. It's looking good, but it's a baby. But the roots are already in the boulder, and it's already cracking asunder the rock formation. And it is, it is little, but it's old enough that it's dropped millions of seeds already. And some of its prodigy are far more powerful and will crack far larger boulders. That's the way you have to think about this. Anyway, they do want to track everything. That's only the beginning, though, and why we, we need things like privacy coins and um, distributed VPNs. So instead of having a VPN like we normally think of, there's now companies building distributed VPNs. So that my computer can act as a node for your computer. I can be a node on the network. Instead of running a node so I can make coins, I can run a node so I can provide an access point. So that you can pick a different access IP on a daily basis. And you pay me in tokens for that access, but no one knows who either one of us are. And even if a VPN provider buys, basically whitelists that service they can't sell you out because we've had VPN providers collecting data on their own customers and getting caught doing it. With a distributed VPN and open source software on a blockchain, that goes away. Social media is already moving to blockchain. And if you add in things like IPFS, which is an interplanetary file system, you're going to end up with something that can't be censored. We're heading to a world where it won't matter what Google or Apple or anybody else does Anybody anywhere will be able to access and provide any content that they want at any time and do so privately or publicly or both. And again, that's in motion. That's in motion. There's new sites that are like competitors to the Twitters or the Facebooks of the world every day that are being built on blockchain. And it's finally starting to happen where like almost every competitor that's coming out is a blockchain service. Um, I was very excited to see something I thought was bad at first the other day. I went to use Float on my phone, F-L-O-T-E dot A-P-P, Float dot app, and the app was gone. It was a beta in a thing called Test Flight on the iPhone. 
It was just gone. And I, I posted on Float. I said, did, did Apple parlor them? It turns out, no, they didn't. Float just decided, we're not putting any more effort into the app. We're not going to get parlored. And they have a thing now that tells you how to set up Safari on the iPhone, where you basically have, essentially, it's like an app, but it's not an app. It's browser-based. And, and they're just like, we're not doing that. And when I heard the CEO announce they were going to become a library app, basically they're going to move their service onto the library blockchain, I was very excited about that as well. That's just one example. We're going to get to a point where people are going to trade information for money. They're going to use cryptocurrency. They're going to use blockchain to deliver the information, to store the information, to distribute the information. And there's going to be literally nothing that you can't do that can be controlled fully. It will become impossible to control. And when psychopaths realize they can't control a thing, but the majority of people will voluntarily be controlled, they focus on the voluntary. And that's what's going to happen. Remember, it's the bigger half that's going to submit. The marketplace is next. There will soon be mainstream blockchain markets that are not subject to cancel culture. Blockbay or something, you know? Bit, BitBay instead of eBay. And if you want to buy a freaking Dr. Seuss book from 1947, you'll be able to buy it. But if you want to read that book to your kid and nobody wants to sell you one of the hard copies, you'll be able to get a soft copy. And even if the people behind Dr. Seuss, the people that have inherited the fortune, say, we don't want you to do that, there's going to be nothing they can do about it. Intellectual property rights are dying right now, especially in anything that can be transported as information. And I wouldn't say dying They're, they're in their final throes of death. I just had one of our my good friends find out that through one of these blockchain services, one of their books is in a PDF that's freely available. And they were losing their shit. I'm like, just forget about it. From now on, when you write a book, you better write a book that's so promotional to what you're doing that if somebody gives it away to a million people, it makes you a million dollars. That needs to be your plan. It should have always been your plan. That's 1970s back-of-the-book marketing, right? where the, selling the book was only a means to get more business, really. Well, we're heading to that world with non-physical product being immune to cancel culture, but we're also going to be in a world where you'll be able to just buy things. And these things exist already, like with, with, with apps like Open Bazaar and things like that. But like, think of it as like Silk Road 8.0 in a way that becomes impossible for the government to shut down and stop. And there is no person to go get. There is no Ross Albright to turn into a, a fall guy and punish for his entire life and let rot in a federal prison because there's no place to attack. There's no person that's responsible. Collaborative. And, you know, you've got a bunch of people that are all Satoshi Nakamoto's building it. And they're not building it to make money. They're building it because they want it. I mean... Making money is a great motivator, but a bigger motivator is changing the world for the people that are actually capable of doing it. And I'm sure that these people will build in ways for them to profit from the platforms, but they don't have to be a Jeff Bezos to be willing to build the, the, the free market version of an Amazon.com. And if you don't think that's coming, you're not paying attention to what's going on. Because whenever governments attempt to oppress, what they end up getting is a response that they're never ready for. If government's incompetent, then government's incompetent. 
You can't have it both ways. Well, government's incompetent, but they're going to succeed in controlling the whole world. They're either incompetent or they're not. Well, history has shown them to be largely incompetent. That doesn't mean they can't do great evil and kill millions of people. The largest mass murderers in the history of the world were in power and in government and within the bounds of the law of the government they ran when they committed mass murder. There's the 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 uh, you know the John Wayne Gacy's the the uh, what's what's the guy's name Jeffrey Dahmer's uh, Otis Tools Henry Lee Lucas's of the world are rank amateurs compared to the lowest level of thug in government. All the great mass murderers were legal in what they did when they did it under their own laws. So yeah, they can be dangerous. And I'm not saying they'll go down without a fight. I'm saying they're incompetent. The, the free market always succeeds. Um, I also think the digital assets will expand beyond crypto, and yet we'll use crypto. A current example of this, and I don't know how well this is going to work out, are what are called NFTs. These are non-fungible tokens. And the token bequeaths a right. So what it's being used for right now are like digital artists. So the artist creates an image. And it's really more like a bragging rights thing. I just don't see this making it long term. This is like an ego thing. So I make this digital piece of art, which obviously can just be replicated over and over and over again. Like a Van Gogh can be made into prints and then printed over and over and over again. But let's say the first print, if it's numbered, and you have that one, it's considered worth more, even though it's identical to all the other thousands of them. So what an NFT has been doing, if I understand it right, with digital art right now, is you have rights to the first one. So this is, I own this digital thing. So instead of the token being fungible, in other words, I can't, like I can take Bitcoin and I can change it into Litecoin or I can change it into dollars. I have the right to the piece of art. The piece of art actually has the value. And, and like I said, I, I think that's really something that only egotistical rich people would care about. But I think that there's probably going to be some sort of utilitarian use for NFTs. So if you think about it, when Bitcoin first started, one of the big questions people had, it was a legitimate question, was, well, what can I buy with it? What can I get with it? And the first marketplaces where you could buy things with Bitcoin, it wasn't drugs. I mean, we were talking about when Bitcoin was like a buck, right? It, it was like you can buy web hosting. It was non-material services that were infinitely scalable that people were willing to take a risk on. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, that's what you could buy. Today, you can buy anything with Bitcoin, and you have been able to for quite a long time. If nothing else, you can fund it into fiat and buy whatever you want or fund it into another crypto that the person will take. And I think NFTs are going to work like that. Like, I think this is like, this is a use case scenario But I think that we, we will probably end up with NFTs essentially being like deeds. And they could be deeds to properties. They could be titles to vehicles. And if you end up with this kind of parallel marketplace where in one marketplace one owns nothing and is supposed to be happy, and in another marketplace we're like, screw that. And you need a way to convey ownership. Then you've got something. Then you've got something. Um, exactly how it's going to work, I don't know. I also think we're going to see 
first active and successful DAOs, which are um, decentralized autonomous organizations. And the way they're mostly presented today, it's like a company, but everybody in the company is kind of a stakeholder in the company, and everybody has a say. And instead of having a CEO, basically the company is run through some level of consensus of all the people that are members of it, and that membership can have something to do with the quantity uh, that one owns, like a typical ownership, or it can have an ag- almost completely egalitarian approach. There's a lot of ways that DAOs um, can run. And most DAOs today are basically cryptocurrency projects. So like, we, instead of creating a company, we create a DAO, and the DAO puts out a token. Right, It would be one way that they've been used. But I think the DAO is what will eventually evolve into true virtual nations. I think that's what Xavier Hawk is really trying to do with Phyron. So it starts out as we have this, this thing that we would think of like a company where everybody that wants to be part of that company has a say in that company and has a benefit from when that company does well. But that, if you look at the way things are going and you think about what the goals to control humanity are, that can quickly evolve into true virtual nations. And I've talked about this before, but a, a nation and a country are not necessarily the same thing. A country is a geographic location with borders. So you have a country that is Israel. Right? But you also have a nation that is Israel. And that's different. It's not bound by geographic location. And there's a lot of nations, I think, out there that are not really about a physical location. And this seems like a natural evolution of humanity to me. And I've been talking about virtual nations, I think, since 2014-ish. And there's been some stabs at it, but they've turned out to be nothing but, like, token pump and dumps and a WordPress site where you can sign up for a citizenship that doesn't really mean anything. But that's not going to remain the case. I think people that are early adopters in the cryptocurrency are going to become among the most wealthy people in the world. And if you have a large group of really wealthy people, they have a lot of power. And when they work together in the form of a virtual nation, they have even more power. And when they can do so from anywhere, any place, any time, and use their collective strength, and if you think this is not a thing, look at something much less organized, like Wall Street bets and what they were able to do to the GameStop price. Now imagine that group of people can't be turned off because they're not using a third party. You start to understand where we're going with that. And I just want to end with, if they co-op Bitcoin, it will likely make it worth a literal fortune if you own any significant amount of it. Now don't be stupid with this. Don't Again, I always say with crypto, don't spend money you can't afford to lose. I don't know what the short term is. Bitcoin's on a tear again. It could be $60,000 by the end of the day, and it could be $20,000 by next week. I don't really know what's going to happen in the short term. But I know in the long term that if you keep having this institutional money come into a scarce asset, and it is scarce, and you can say it's artificial scarcity, so are diamonds. Diamonds are far more artificially scarce than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is scarce because of the way it was set up in the beginning, and you can't change it. You can fork it and do something different, But it's not Bitcoin. It's a fork of Bitcoin, which Litecoin is, which Bitcoin Cash is, etc. It's still here. It's still Bitcoin. And it's limited. And you can't make more of it. It's artificial, again, in that the number was set arbitrarily by the original code, but it's hard. It's set. It's done. 
Diamonds are scarce because De Beers owns almost all the supply of diamonds and controls how many are released. There's actually billions of diamonds. Diamonds should be fundamentally worthless. They really should. There's nothing scarce about diamonds. Nothing. So there's your artificial scarcity, but I don't think anybody's screaming that diamonds are going to be worthless tomorrow. But if you, if you get a situation where the elite decide, we want to kind of take over, manage, and control Bitcoin, how do you do that? Well, you're not going to do it through mining. There's too much incentive. And it, even though we, we, the mining is not as decentralized maybe as it would be in a utopitarian world, anybody can mine. And the more valuable it gets, the more incentive there is to mine. And while there's large mining farms, there's lots of them. And those mining farms are not generally made up of one entity. They're funded by multiple, multiple miners. Even though this one mining operation might be in this one place, all of those machines in there doing that mining are owned by thousands of individuals. So you have a real hard time. Like If you could easily just take over the Bitcoin network, it would have been done by now. It's a trillion-dollar asset. I mean, you understand that, right? So if they want to co-opt it, what they have to do is actually gain a controlling holding in it. And that drives up the price. It has to, because there's only so much of it. And I think that's where we're headed with that. Now, I want to switch here to the other side. And it's our old guidance from 2008 and onward at TSPC, which is going from home to homestead. And I think that you need to think about all the things you've heard about with the Great Reset, what you heard today, but all the other things, and what their plan is. And you got people like Bill Gates out there, again, who's the guy that's worth, it's like the richest man in the world damn near, and he still wants more. But he says all the the rich countries should be eating synthetic meat, right? I mean, if, if nothing else, one of the reasons I think we should be homesteading is I think if you want to eat meat regularly in the future, You are either going to have to raise it, you're going to have to live in an area where people raise it and buy it locally, or if you're going to buy it from the existing establishment, you're going to pay a lot more for it at best. I don't think by 2030 it will be impossible to go have a steak dinner in the United States. I don't think it's that bad. But I think it will cost a lot more to do so. And it will cost a lot more to buy CAFO beef, let alone really good quality beef. And I think even if you're buying it locally, you're going to pay more than you would now. But I think, again, we're going to bifurcate into this, this market. And so as a homesteader, I think you should be seeing at least some of your protein and your fat needs, especially from an animal side of things. I think the real plan here, and I keep saying this, is to control the majority. And the reason isn't because they wouldn't prefer to control the totality. But when you're a sociopath... Like I said, you're smart, and sociopaths tend to do what works. Controlling the majority works. If you can get control of the majority of the population, then you're set if this is your plan. And, yeah, there'll be people out in the outskirts doing their own thing, raising pigs and, and living in the dirt and and being largely ignored because it's easier to ignore them Because when you when you go to the next, what, what comes after they ignore you? They mock you. They fight you. And then what? You win. So what happened to cryptocurrency? So in many instances, 
if the people living their own way are outside of your system of control and they're over there doing their thing, it is better to continue to ignore them or mock them than to fight them. Because immediately when you engage in a fight with somebody who has a, a valid alternative to you, you begin to lose. The easiest way to win a war is don't fight it in the first place. These people are not stupid. So I'm not saying they'll let us get away with anything that they we want, but I also want you to start thinking of, of us as peasants in a positive way. So what I mean by that is we often think of peasants as being this class of like the lowest class of people. But the peasants of old, they lived out in the countryside and they largely did what they want. And even people like that we, we look to with like some level of respect today that maybe we shouldn't respect as much as we do, like John Locke. Because I'm sorry, I know a lot of you guys think John Locke was this huge advocate for freedom and private ownership and, and everything, but John Locke was a bastard. John Locke wrote extensively about the problem of the peasant. How do we get him into our factories? How do we get him? He grows up with his dad. They kill a couple of pigs a year, and they, they don't, you know... They work six months out of the year, and they don't. They, they they screw off for the other six. They party. They're drunk. They have a little holding of land. How do we get them into the factories? Look it up if you doubt me. So the peasants were always hard to control, and the monarchies and the royals and nobles feared above all things peasants revolting because there was a lot of them, and they knew how to do shit, and they could feed themselves, and they'll pitchfork you in the face. So the peasants have always been hard to control. And I want you to start thinking about a term that my buddy Vin Armani uses, crypto-savage. Right? And I want you to think maybe the crypto-savages, maybe more of, or another term for them would be techno-peasant. The techno-peasant. But the modern peasant will be a Cooper-level individual at least. So what do I mean by that? So when we look back into the feudal order and the time of the peasant. We also had a merchant class and a, like an upper middle class. And the guy that was a cooper, if you've never heard the term before, cooper makes barrels. It was a very valuable thing to be able to make a barrel at that time. Barrels were the container that did everything. If we think about today, like plastic... Like, imagine you had the ability to make plastic, and very few people did. It wasn't something that could be done in any factory. That's what the Cooper of the day was like. But there was there, there were the people that, that were the blacksmiths, the Coopers, and then there was the merchant class as well, right? These are people that lived really well, and they weren't part of the system of nobility. And to the most part, they ignored everybody else. We're moving into a world where the modern peasant is that merchant class. They are that fabricator class. They're the people that actually have their own businesses. And if you think about marrying that to technology, and I really think that people that are early adopters into cryptocurrency, and I think there's still time to be that, are going to be among the most wealthy people there are. So now you take the techno-peasant and you give him wealth. And that is this bifurcation. You're going to end up with people that live like our great-grandparents, but have true wealth. And think about how that keeps going. And we know, 
We know from the work of, of, of good permaculturists all over the world that a quarter to a half acre property can easily provide 50% of a family's needs. And it's actually probably easier to use a half acre to provide 50% of your needs than it is to take 10 acres and try to provide 100% of your needs. I know that seems crazy. Why can't I just have double the land and get double the stuff? Because some stuff doesn't do well under your management on this one piece of land in your climate. That's why we need trade, or one of the reasons we need trade. And some of the things that we want, we maybe don't need, but we still want them. So just let it be half of your needs. Half of your basic needs. How far ahead of others are you if you have half of your needs taken care of when you wake up in the morning before you do anything? That you've put the systems in place and the labor that we normally think of as being difficult, if you do proper design, your daily activities as a being on your piece of land see to that. Most people get out of bed and walk around. They don't sit on their ass all day and play video games, especially homesteaders. So a lot of design is I'm going to get up and go out and let these birds out, and a lot of the things I need to do are just kind of on the way. And you end up with your daily routine seeing the half of what you need. And once you have that, again, how far ahead of you are are you of other people? If you have a workaday job and are basically trying to fund your life the way everybody else is, now add some real wealth to that on the back end. And add income from those activities as well. Because what is actually easier than producing 100% of your own needs is producing 50% of your own needs and having many of those needs in surplus that can be sold off to those who are not doing it or bartered with others who are producing a surplus of other needs. So you end up in a position of kind of the, the, the gentleman farmer of old and, and becoming this kind of interesting modern crypto techno peasant is what I, where I see people moving with this. And the one things that people will always bring up with this is, but they'll tax your property. Well, they have property tax. You never own land. It's property tax. You never own land. It's property tax. Okay, listen, dummy. Unless you are a vagabond, you know, basically like boondocking in an RV, you live somewhere. You're paying property tax too. So I'm going to give you three ways you can be paying property tax. You tell me which one sounds best to you. You completely own the property outright. You owe no money against it, and your only real bill for the property is the tax on it. You are mortgaging the property. You have debt against it and the property tax. Okay. I own the land. You're renting from me. I'm charging you to live there more than it costs me to provide the place, and you're paying my property tax. Because that's what renters do. If you're a renter, you're paying my property tax. Now, this fits very well for the people behind the Great Reset, where you will own nothing. If you own nothing, somebody owns it. Right? It's not like nobody owns it. And whoever owns it, you're, you're paying their property tax. So this whole property tax objection, I agree the property tax is inherently evil. It is probably the most inherently evil form of taxation that there is. It is far worse than an income tax or a capital gains tax. It's far worse than a sales tax. There's, there's multiple ways to avoid or mitigate those others. Property tax is the most difficult to mitigate and the most insidious because you're taxing something that just sits there that may not be producing anything for me. 
And if you think about what people are paying in property tax in nice suburbs, it's insane. It's insane. These people have a yard. They can literally stand on their back porch, and if they piss really hard, they can hit their back fence. And they're paying five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars in property tax because of the value of the house. One way to mitigate property tax is to get out of areas that are artificially inflated in value. Those usually make good places to homestead. Um, and so they can tax property, but property tax on land you own is better than property tax on land you owe against, and certainly better than tax that you pay a landlord. Just think about that. And then the communities of trust, I believe, will be outside the communities that are 100% under surveillance. And I really do think we are heading to a world of smart cities where your phone becomes the microchip everybody fears because nobody leaves without their phone. People are afraid to be without their phone. Watch when somebody can't find their phone, how they react. Think about it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Have you ever seen somebody like, where's my phone? And they start panicking. It's just a phone. It's just a phone. Where's my phone? Now, I know you're thinking, well, it could be data on there. So that data is already being shared with people who shouldn't have it. And I understand that part of it. But no, that's not what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Like, there's this, like, oh, my God, what do I do without my phone? So this whole idea that they're going to microchip people, they can surveil you. They don't need to do that because you willingly carry the most advanced surveillance device that's ever existed on the planet with you everywhere you go. And usually most people carry it in their right hand or put it up to their forehead just if you want some prophecy thrown in that just for the hell of it. But the communities that are outside of 100% surveillance will be the communities built on trust. And they will be the ones that are outside, minimum, outside the Beltway suburbs, the ideal homesteading projects, uh, pro properties. And if you doubt me, just ask an old Russian who lived in the countryside. If you talk to people that lived during Stalinism, right, and lived during, like, Khrushchev, They'll tell you there were two Russias. And it was a union of Soviet socialists. Just let's just say Russia. Everybody else did at the time anyway, okay? Trust me, I'm old enough. I was alive back during a lot of this. We just called them the Russians. So just ask an old Russian. Ask an old Russian what the difference was between living in Moscow and living outside in the country. Where they had, they call it a dasha, I think, which is like a, a, a property allotment for growing your own food and stuff on. There were two different worlds. All the shit, all the terror that was going on in the cities, people being sent to gulags, people being rounded up, all of that shit, it did not happen outside the cities, but it was so much less. And largely people did their own thing. They grew food, they traded with each other, they drank booze, they made moonshine, they lived their life. I know that's hard to believe because especially if you're at my age, you grew up with these horror stories of what Russia was like. And one of the most universally interesting things was anybody that went to Russia. Well, I don't know what the hell these people are talking about because, you know, you always use the other, even if the other side's bad, you always make it worse so that you have more control over your own people. And trust me, Russia did the same thing. One of my best friends in the world is a gentleman named Val Razanov. He's a former KGB agent. He said that, that our government did the exact same thing to us that your government did to you. Oh, those people over there, man. It's an old game. They're not going to change it. And so you are going to have society built in a way 
that the communities of trust are going to be the ones outside of these areas of control. That's why I keep saying to get out now while the window's still open. Here's my final thoughts today. Right now, the door is wide open. There is nothing that prevents anybody from positioning themselves to be on the right side of this bifurcation, but the door is also closing. It's closing slowly. It's a big door, but the pandemic accelerated the speed of that door. And if you're going to do something about it, I'd start soon. Next, the learning curve gets longer every day you're outside of it. If you think about some of you that have been homesteading for a number of years, when it comes to the basics of setting up a garden, you don't even care anymore, do you? It's not a thing. You've already mastered that. And even if you don't get everything you want out of your gardening or your small farm or whatever, there's a basic core that you just got it down. Your peppers, your tomatoes, your eggplants, your squash, right? Like you just, eh, I just kind of every season I just do this and then it just comes out, right? So when you need to add something, you don't have to learn that first. So if you, if you decide, you know what, I want some more animals. Well, now you know how to grow things. So if you decide that you want to grow rabbits... You can immediately start adding some of their feed to what you're producing, and then when you feed it to them, they produce this stuff called poop, and that poop goes in your garden and makes your garden stronger. So your learning curve is shorter. It's the same thing with the high-tech stuff, the cryptocurrency. When a new cryptocurrency comes out that's a complete privacy coin, you're not trying to figure out how to buy Bitcoin so that you can buy the privacy coin. You just take some of your Bitcoin that you've been receiving for something that you've been doing that's all private sort of anyway and converting it into something private. And there's so many things like that, technology and old school, that it's this little bit that has to be learned incrementally every day. And the people that are going to thrive are going to have a broad-scale mastery. Right? It's the It's the, you know... Jack of all trades and master of some, as I've, as I've kind of changed the, the old parable a little bit from Ben Franklin. And I think that, it, that being a jack of all trades, a jack of a trade appears to be a master of that trade to someone that doesn't understand anything about it. And so not only is the door closing, but even when you walk through the door, the ability to ramp up is becoming more difficult as time goes on and you don't do anything because you're burning your dash. right? you got that dash between the year you're born and the year you die. That dash is you. Every day you're not moving in this direction. Life's pushing you back and you're burning your dash. You need to understand that the entire system or group of systems is your enemy. It's all your enemy. None of it is on your side. The government is not on your side. I don't care if it's the Republicans or the Democrats. They're not on your side. The oligarchs are not on your side. None of the media, not on your side. But when you want to go and pick like your top three enemies, they are the education system. Because the education system will condition your children to be in the majority of the bifurcation. You can do everything right, and your children, when they're 24 years old, you'll look at them and wonder how that young adult has turned, its, turned their back on most of your values. Because you didn't raise them, the system raised them in their education system. I think you need to start looking at the school system as though you're sending your child to a building that's on fire. 
You wouldn't do that. No matter what sacrifice you had to make, you would get them out of that building that was on fire. If you had to put a wet blanket over yourself, crash through a burning wall, grab your kid, hug them, and run out with them while you got third-degree burns on your back, you would do it. It's that bad. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse. I, I, I am dumbfounded. Even me, I am dumbfounded by conservatives slash Republicans talking about how bad the school system is and in the next breath shrieking about opening up our skill our schools for the health and welfare of our children. It's sad. It's sad. This place is terrible. They're indoctrinating our children. I can't wait to get my kid back in there. Good God. Those of you who live in places where the schools are still closed... Whatever you need to do to figure out how to not send your kid to school, you've done by now three times over. Make the final shift and get them out of the education system because it's not an education system. Your next enemy is the banking system. The banks are the enemy of the people. The banks are the ultimate enemy of the people. Because when you control the monetary supply, you control the people. I don't care who's in, in charge as far as government. The banks rule the world and the most powerful of bankers you don't even know their names and you never will and the politicians all politicians are your enemy because all politicians seek to control you or seek to control your neighbor just because you happen to agree with the control mechanism doesn't make that politician any less your enemy Because sooner or later, they'll want to control you in a way that you don't want to be controlled. And I think this is a thing that most people really don't understand. The most dangerous politicians are local. When well, I say local government is the best government, local government is the most oppressive form of government there is. Because all local governments can do is add. At least in our republic, if a state really wants to, it can at least make an effort to push back against the federal government. Counties, cities, townships, boroughs, villages, right? None of them have any real pushback mechanism against state supremacy. So it is the local government that will take away the last vestiges of your liberty. Because it's all they can do. And what does any entity do, above all things? Seeks to survive, and the way that a bureaucracy seeks to survive is to do what? To justify its existence. Plain and simple. So when you have a local government, they're not going to go tell the federal government or the state government or the county government to piss off. They're going to pass more laws and more regulations. They can pass a regulation that says you have a freedom a state doesn't say you have, and the state doesn't care. They'll come in and, and do whatever they're going to do anyway. So the most strategic things we can do there with those three enemies are, in order, the education system, remove your children from it, period. They don't deserve the honor of educating your child because they don't want to educate your child. They want to program them. Do not let other people program your children because that's what they're doing. Two, the banking system. At least partially exit it. Cryptocurrency, period. There is no other option. Gold and silver, yes, and send it to somebody in Pennsylvania. Go ahead. I, I'm not against silver and gold. Barter is useful, and that's what silver and gold should be seen as, as barter implements. But cryptocurrency is incredibly important as a piece of the whole here. So that you can do business with somebody else privately and conveniently 
at your discretion with a known and quantifiable understanding of value on both sides, and you can do that without actually pressing palms together if you have to. Or spending more, I mean, how are you going to, you know, what are you going to do? If you have to buy something for 50 bucks, you're going to send them $50 worth of silver and, and spend 20 bucks in shipping to get it there protected? Come on. So the banking system, the answer to that is cryptocurrency. And we will get better and better answers on that as technology continues to evolve. And then on politicians, the most dangerous of which are local, move. Strategic relocation. Wherever you relocate to, you should go to a place that's already predisposed to liberty, that local people kind of feel like people should be left alone to do what they want, not your business type folks, but the least amount of local government possible, which is why I love unincorporated. Unincorporated locations where the county does not act like a city government. When you find that, you have the ultimate in freedom because you've removed a layer of government. You've, 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 you've taken a layer off. We're not going to get rid of state and county governments, unfortunately, and we're not going to get rid of the federal government, unfortunately. It's not going to happen. So we need to exist in a space that doesn't have that most tyrannical local form of government. And the only thing more tyrannical than a city government or a township government or something like that is what? An HOA, a private government. You know, I'm all for private governments if they replace public governments. But in addition to, that's a person that's like, you know what, I just need more government in my life. If you think about it, people that want an HOA, they're like, you know what, we got, we got the federal government and all the regulations that go with it and codes and standards. We got the state government. We got the county government. We got the city government. Yeah, you know, I... That guy down the road might do something I don't like. And all this government, these four layers of government, billions of lines of restriction, just not enough for me. I need more. So that's what we have to do to fight those systems. Get them out of school, be your own bank, and move to places where there's the least amount of political control possible in the geography. The future you have is going to be based on your choices that you make today. That's always been true. I just don't know that it's ever been more true than it is right now. Like I keep saying, you're not going to stop this. You're not going to stop. It, it amazes me. Like the the the, the, the Trump pe people, they just watched the election stolen from them in real time. And I, I'm not here to, to take up their cause. But I think the only way you don't feel that this last election was stolen is you don't want to believe it. You don't want, you don't want to believe it. We have literal video of people in Georgia pulling giant suitcases out from under a table and counting ballots in the middle of the night after the, the, the counting was closed for the night and no one went to jail. We have documented proof of people harvesting and changing ballots and nobody's got, hardly anybody's gone to jail for it. Little token here and there. We have evidence upon evidence. We have poll workers who are Democrats that say, I am so not okay with this, I'm speaking out against it, that have testified under penalty of perjury throughout the United States. That happened. Not a single one of those people that testified under penalty of perjury has been charged with perjury because there is no case to make against them, i.e. they're telling the truth. And yet these people say, well, we're going to punish them at the ballot box in 2022. And I just, oh my God. 
Oh my God, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? That's you if you're that person. You're not going to punish them. You're not going to hold them accountable. It's never going to happen. You're not going to rein them in. You're not going to show them on election day. I farted and it made a bigger difference than your vote. I'm sorry. I don't want that to be true, but it is. I would love it if Santa Claus was real, but he's not. Right? I would love it if the Tooth Fairy really bought kids money, but Mom and Dad do that, not the Tooth Fairy. There's a lot of things that are nice to think of. It'd be great if they were true. It'd be great if everybody got a, a, their own unicorn that farted rainbows and had a guardian angel that rode the unicorn and slid down the rainbow and granted you three wishes whenever you needed some. That would be awesome, but it's not true. And you're not going to change this with a vote. You're not going to change this politically, and this is a mega trend moving forward in humanity at the current time. And it happens over and over and over and over again. And every time it happens, there are groups of people who don't just go along with it. And instead of fighting it up the middle where you get killed... Today you end up in prison for the rest of your life. In days of old, they strung you up on a table and pulled your intestines out till you begged for the mercy of death. As much bullshit as there was in Braveheart, that was a real thing. That was something really done. The people that profit, the people that thrive, the remnant that succeeds are the people that stay apart. Instead of thinking, I will reform the system from within the system, they go build their own systems. It won't be any different this time. The only choice you're going to make is, will you be part of it? Get your kids out of school. Be your own bank with cryptocurrency. And get your ass to a location where you have control of your life. And I mean that in the virtual world and the real world both. All these things are coming. Very few times do I say, when I say this is the future, I often say, like, I think. I don't think there's a thing I told you is going to happen today that's not going to happen. Not a single one. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up, and let me remind you that if you like this show and the work that we do, you can always do your online shopping at tspaz.com, and that will help the survival podcasts and the work that we do. Item of the day today is an item that I am surprised it keeps going on sale as much as it has. Um, it went years where it was on sale for like a day and then would be gone for like six months, and it stayed on sale like the last couple of weeks, so I decided to bring it back again. It's the DeWalt 20-volt Max XR Cordless Drill Combo Kit. This is an impact driver and a really great drill for $200. If you bought all the items in the kit individually, it would be about $400 on sale for $200. If you already have good gear, you don't need it. If you already have a good DeWalt drill and impact driver, you don't need it. Um, if you're looking to upgrade your tools, this is a great opportunity to do it. If you're looking to get into... Uh, a good cordless tool line. I don't think DeWalt is the only answer. They're my preference. And they're my preference because I've been using them for 25 years. I'll admit that. Some people think I, I bleed black and gold. I'm really not that fanatical. But I, I really love the DeWalt line. Uh, Makita, Milwaukee, Bosch, those are all good lines. Rigid, they're all good lines too. And they're all priced about the same. To get into a line like this of cordless tools as your base at this price is a great opportunity. And at 200 bucks, it's a steal. It's certainly the case that the drill is worth way over $200 by itself, and the impact driver is worth well over 100 
Then you got the charger and two batteries. I don't really care about the little bag they give you. I usually use my DeWalt bags for other things. But, uh, man, it's just a, a, a great opportunity. And I, I, I was like, I brought this around a lot since it's been on sale so much lately. But I was thinking about it today and went, There's still probably people out there that have missed out on sales in the past, so I wanted to bring it around again. But remember, no matter what you buy, you can always help us out just by starting your shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. Song of the day today is by, uh, and I've, I've played some other songs by them, and I say this every time, and it's, it's true, uh, one of the more underrated bands in history, uh, 38 Special. I, I think they're just like... They're just really solid. Like, almost everything they ever produced is a good quality song. Uh, this certainly is, and it's one of their kind of later ones. It's called Never Give an Inch. It was released in 1986. And if you really listen to it and you think about the type of band 38 Special was, the place in the career that they were, etc., I would say that this song is mostly about the music business itself. Most bands that have relative success, that fight their way through it, that don't completely give in to the establishment, write a song something like this at some point in their in their time. But I think this is a great song for the for the show we did today. Never give an inch. Never give an inch. But I think there's ways to not give an inch. Right? There's the direct headlong fight, and in many of the aspects that we talked about today, you know, that's not really the way to not give an inch. You know, I do Miyagi mornings, and that comes from the Karate Kids uh, series, right, Mr. Miyagi? And that's just because we call the ponds Miyagi ponds um, is where that came from. But I've been watching uh, Cobra Kai with my grandson because it's really, it's really a great series. I would say the Cobra Kai series is so much better than the original movies, um, not counting the third one, which was just retarded. It was the most cartoonish, stupid thing I've ever seen in my life, and that's saying a lot. But... Um, In the, the second movie, Miyagi's teaching Daniel-san, and he says what? The best way to block punch is to no be there. That's another way to not give an inch. You, always, you don't always have to fight directly. Misdirection, another option. I'm not going to go try to change the school system. I'm just going to remove my kid from it. I'm not going to try to change the banking system because I'm trying to change the system in which the system I'm trying to change has all the power. That makes no sense. But I'll just remove some of my wealth from the banking system. Politicians, I'm not going to go try to fix the system by becoming a politician. And I can't tell you how many times I've been told that. But Jack, why don't you run for office? Because I don't, I'm not a sociopath and I don't want power. And I also know that when good people go into politics, they either hate their life or they become what they hate, one or the other. So I'm not going to go into politics. I'm going to make myself ungovernable, and I'm never going to give an inch. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. <laughs>